Good evening. I'd like to uh, direct your attention to Psalm 12 tonight. If you'd turn there. Psalm 12. And those who paid attention uh, in the past will recall that I read out of the English Standard Version, but tonight I'm switching over to the NASB, so don't let me throw you for a loop on that. Psalm 12. Help, Lord. For the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that speaks great things. Who have said with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Join me in prayer. Father, we are grateful to you, King of love, as we just sang. Lord, you are the one who sits above all the earth, all the universes on your throne. Nothing escapes your eye. Lord, nothing is outside your great superintending sovereignty. Father, we ask tonight that you would come and draw near to us. Father, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, we pray that as we consider this short psalm, that you would speak. Father, that we would hear. Lord, that the name of Christ would be lifted on high. Stir us, Father, as we look to you and set aside all the distractions and busyness of our lives tonight. Lord, we praise you for who you are. We praise you and we thank you for what you've already done here and all across this land. And we ask, Father, that you would again make your name great. And Father, we turn now and just pray that you would work through these stumbling efforts, and Lord, that you would accomplish all your goodwill. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, this is a psalm I uh, am particularly fond of from uh, early years of our marriage. I was... uh, in a church where we had a, a wonderful, godly man who uh, befriended us, and we started working on some uh, memory work together and, and worked through several of these psalms. And s- ever since then, even though I, I memorized it in the authorized version, of course, it has stuck with me through the years and seems particularly appropriate these days for us. Uh, last Sunday, most of you were here. Jordan Thomas uh, brought a wonderful message from. 1 Timothy chapter 3, talking about the household of God and we as members of that household, how we should conduct ourselves based on the truth of that gospel. But 
immediately following that passage, the very next verses in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2, we're warned, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later, later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. I would suggest to you that Psalm 12, although written by David so many hundreds and hundreds of years ago, reflects a, a similar time period and outlook on what we see today in our own world, in our own lives. The commentators and scholars are not 100% certain of the setting that led to this Psalm of David, but it's generally agreed that he wrote it when Saul was persecuting him. And we all, I hope, will recall those uh, dire times set forth in First Samuel around chapters 20 to 22 or so. And consider, if you will, much like I think our modern times and really throughout history, when you're looking at a palace ruling class sort of setting, it's invariably dotted with, really overrun by, palace intrigue, gossip, backbiting, people that are very ambitious looking to take you down in order that they can advance their own careers and so forth. And you'll recall that David at that time was living in Saul's palace. I expect he experienced very much the same sort of thing. And we know that Saul grew very jealous of David, his success on the battlefield, his godly character. And you'll recall that he undertook to kill David and remove him in order that Saul's own line would inherit the kingdom when Saul passed. Um, Saul went so far as to accuse, falsely of course, David of setting an ambush for him and chastised his uh, courtiers and advisors, you may recall. What scripture never says, though, is that the advisors, many of whom you must assume, at least some of whom, were good church-going, perhaps devout people, but they never spoke back to the king. They never contradicted him, took issue with him. And so David, you'll recall, fled at one point and went to Ahimelech, the priest, for weapons and supplies. But he lied to Ahimelech as to why he was there. And remember the name Doeg. It always struck me. It's one of those sort of eerie names that ought to be in the pantheon of the most wicked people that have ever walked the earth, perhaps, up there with Ahab and Jezebel and such. But Doeg, the Edomite saw David at the uh, priesthood there at Nob and later told Saul about it. And you'll recall Saul went to Nob and interviewed, really uh, attacked Ahimelech for his uh, trusting David and ended up, through the hand of Doeg, slaughtering every priest there, 85 of the priests. My thought is that it's likely at least plausible, that David wrote this psalm thinking of that kind of fallout from the wickedness that he had encountered. 
The psalm is roughly organized into four couplets of two verses each. So let's take those first two verses and break it down a little bit here. Verses 1 and 2 again. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear, or in the King James, fail from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart, they speak. That first phrase, help, Lord, literally is save Yahweh. It's, interestingly enough, what Peter cried out when he was trying to go to Jesus on the water. Remember when they saw Jesus walking on the waves? Peter gets out, says, I'm going to come to you, and gets a couple steps out there and starts sinking. He cries out, help, Lord. Spurgeon says it's a kind of angel's sword to be turned every way and to be used on all occasions. Sort of a desperate cry, a prayer we can throw up in our most urgent kind of desperate circumstances. Psalm also says the faithful disappear. Well, what exactly does that mean? I would suggest there's maybe two possibilities there. One being, as we sort of laid out a, a moment ago, when the root of wickedness sort of takes hold in a setting like the palace, and you know how the leader is turning away from God, the faithful maybe don't literally disappear, but they sort of shrink back. They grow very quiet. They don't want to be noticed at that point. Much like, as I say, with David, when he was being persecuted, falsely accused, uh, in dire straits, no one seemed to speak up for him. The faithful disappeared on his behalf. I think there's a, another plausible translation here, as the King James gives it, though, the faithful fail from among the children of men. Literal failure in the sense that being men with feet of clay, even the faithful, as in David's day, sometimes fail to do what we're called to do. It is nothing to be proud of, obviously, but it's a reality, I think, in our world and in our own hearts that we are weak. We simply sometimes shrink back from doing the right things. Of course, we shouldn't be shocked at this. Jeremiah 17, 9, Stephen mentioned it in his prayer on Sunday. What does it say about our heart? It is so deceitful above all else, right? Desperately wicked. Well, that's our heart too, right? We often find that those who talk a good game, and even ourselves here, right? when times are good, become strangely silent when times are hard and there's a real cost to speaking out. Consider in our own recent experience with the uh, COVID uh, madness where lockdowns are instituted and they're telling us we can't gather in church and uh, just all kinds of, I would call, constitutional excesses. It's a very difficult time and you often would find those who you thought were among the most uh, godly and bold suddenly became mute and 
shrunk back, did not want to be found or singled out. And this phrase at the end of that verse, the children of men, literally, as you might expect, we see this um, in other parts of Scripture, sons of Adam. And those that are uh, C.S. Lewis Narnia fans will recall that he often refers to the uh, characters in his novels, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. I think that's a great, maybe subtle reminder. That's really who we are, right? We're born into the family of Adam. Frail, weak, prone to wander. You know, Jordan on Sunday was encouraging us, challenging us to what we should be and what we really are as the church of God, right? Beacons of light and truth. But I would suggest it behooves us to remember what we were as sons of Adam and the remnants of that old man within us. We have, in one sense, become, as Augustine says, citizens of the city of God, but we remain residents here in the city of man. Remember even the experience of Christ, the son of David, right? When he was arrested, what do we see among the faithful there? All, every one of his closest friends, his disciples, abandoned him, right? Three plus years he's with them, day and night. Constant companion, they see everything that he is, everything that he does. Patiently teaching, guiding, demonstrating his godliness, that he is God. Yet they left him in an instant, at the first sign of trouble. How can we expect that we would do any, anything different if we were in their shoes? Paul cautions us in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 2 says they speak falsehood to one another. The King James here, they speak vanity, empty words. So study not too long ago at the University of Arizona as to uh, the average number of words that we speak in a day. They actually tracked these people over a very long period of time, monitored everything they said. I would ask for guesses, but here's, here's the bottom line. An average, some of us are much higher than that, 16,000 words every single day we speak. By the way, it's the same male and female. There was some suggestion years ago that women spoke roughly twice as much, but apparently um, 16,000, men and women. How many of those words in every single day for us are empty, vanity, maybe falsehood? With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. It's an interesting pairing, it seems to me. We're all familiar with flattering lips. They're not telling truth. They may have some grain of truth, maybe a half-truth in there, but they're spoken with something of an angle, a, uh, an ulterior motive, aren't they? Puffing up your neighbor, but really for your own selfish ends, right? Not exactly what we're commanded to do 
by loving our neighbor. It's not very loving to lie to your neighbor, is it? Um, and flatterers are almost invariably double-hearted. They want you to believe they're all about you, but of course, deep down, they're really about advancing their own agenda. Um, I guess it's been in syndicated form now. I don't know if, if Leave It to Beaver is still uh, Leave It to Beaver is still available, but we often to this day talk about the character Eddie Haskell. Do y'all remember Eddie Haskell? He was like the king of flattery whenever he would be around the cleavers and just tell them anything they wanted to hear. But as soon as their back is turned, he's all about getting into mischief, right? Great example, I think, of a flatterer. Scripture is full of references and really condemnation of those that do not speak truth. Psalm 5.9, their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Um, Proverbs 26.28, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. So Psalm 12 is in this grouping, we call it a, a lament, like Psalm 7, 10, 17, 25, 37. But its theme is a little more specialized here because it kind of bores in on the use of words and speech more than any of them. Keep in mind, too, in Matthew, um, Christ himself warns us, I tell you on the day of judgment, People will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Pretty strong stuff, right? The idea here of flattery, falsehood, these insincere words at best, are directly contrary again to what Paul admonishes um, therefore putting away lying let every one of you speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another very sobering for me at least to consider how seriously the Lord takes our use of language look at this next couplet here verses 3 and 4 the psalmist now turns and kind of considers, urges, pleads, maybe internally here, not yet to the Lord, but may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great or proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? Notice that David does not fall into despair here though certainly that would be easy given his circumstances. Um, he doesn't try to plot his own revenge. He doesn't go to kind of tit for tat and engage in his own deceptive ways. He turns to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? But notice too how this passage kind of opens for us how the wicked understand, I would suggest, the power of words. They understand, with our tongue we will prevail. Not with our sword, not with all these other weapons. With our tongue we will prevail. Think about 
the crucial role, really, of words in, for instance, the corruption of souls, the corruption of cities and states. Deceptive words. Words have always been a weapon for good or evil. Can we even conceive of a Hitler rising to power without first wowing the crowds, persuading with his speeches? And obviously, the example in Genesis, Satan to Adam and Eve. It's the deceptive words that brought about the fall. And where would a man like Winston Churchill have been without his extraordinary persuasive speeches? God has made very clear in Scripture, much though we want to think of him and ought to think of him as the God of love, there are things that he identifies specifically that he hates. Among them, according to Proverbs 6, a lying tongue, a false witness who breathes out lies. Likewise, you see the pride in the language here of the wicked. Pride, we all know, is a root sin, also, of course, abhorred by God. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. Very strong language. It's Proverbs 8. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Proverbs 15. Or Psalm 31. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And notice, too, that pride, the tongue that boasts of great things, it says. Ultimately, we know, but in the short term, we often forget. We can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13. But in the meantime, it is a real challenge, isn't it? Those with the best speech, sort of like the... Uh, proverbial used car salesman. They can talk you into almost anything, right? Um, but we get it in a much more serious way. In, uh, in spiritual conversations, the folks that bring believers, or, or churchgoers at least, into heresy, into cults, do so with the slickest of speech. Proverbs warns about this. Proverbs 13, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. But remember Proverbs 5, the righteous hates falsehood. <clears throat> also, notice that the boasting here, who is Lord over us? Our lips are our own. Doesn't that sound a lot like the pro-abortion lobby? Our bodies, ourselves? We really haven't come very far, have we, since the days of David? There's nothing new under the sun. But the question that they raise there really is a question for all the ages, isn't it? Who is Lord over us? It's a fair question every one of us should ask. Obvious choices. Either Christ is Lord or self and sin is on the throne of your heart. Which one is it for you? If in your own hearts you really cannot say that Jesus Christ is Lord, his call still goes out to you today. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Look here now at verse 5. Now, after all the sorrow and angst of the wicked prevailing, because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Sometimes it may seem the Lord doesn't really hear us, right? Or he's a little late to the game. Our timing is so often not his timing. We know, of course, that that is not so. As this passage suggests, he hears not only our cries, but sometimes even our groaning. His eyes are always upon his children. As the father, as our own earthly fathers, those of you who are fathers, you have a special ear for the cries of your own children. So our father hears the cries of his children. You know, the old westerns, which most folks don't watch anymore, I think, uh, were notorious for putting the good guys into terrible straits and really at wit's end, maybe running out of ammunition, and it looks like all is lost, and all of a sudden, here comes the cavalry, right? Just barely in the nick of time. Sort of like that often, I think, with God. He's never late. He's never late. He will arise and take the field for his children. Spurgeon observes, man's extremity is God's opportunity. I would add that a crisis is often a chance to see who Christ is. It's only when we're in that pit, in the depths of frustration and despair sometimes, that we really look up and see our risen Savior, see his saving hand, his deliverance. And think about this. As difficult as it is for God's people in the midst of persecution, and we can't make light of that. It is horrific. It's even worse for the persecutors. Do y'all remember in The Hiding Place, Corey Ten Boom tells the story of standing with her father as they're watching a carload, a train loaded up with Jews, with the yellow stars. And Corey and her father knew where they were headed. They were headed to the death camps. And Corey says, Father, those poor people. And here's what her father says, those poor people, Father echoed. But to my surprise, Corey writes, I saw that he was looking at the soldiers now forming into ranks to march away. I pity the poor Germans, Corey. They have touched the apple of God's eye. For those of us that can look back, just as in David's day, after the fact and see how horrific it was for the persecutors, we understand the wisdom of Corey's father. It's worse for them than for God's children. And now we turn, though, and the psalmist looks, God having spoken, 
In verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. It's a beautiful picture, although maybe somewhat uh, old-fashioned for us today. We don't see a lot of uh, the refining process. But the purity of the word of God here. Silver tried in a furnace of earth, refined seven times the number of perfection, right? It's entirely pure, free from any dross, any imperfection, whatever. Spurgeon again, the Bible has passed through the furnace of persecution, literary criticism, philosophic doubt, and scientific discovery, and has lost nothing but those human interpretations which belong to it as alloy to precious ore. In other words, it is itself the impurity. Scripture itself, of course, testifies abundantly to the faithfulness of God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, we've been over several times here. All scripture breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, right? Um, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. All the prophecies, all the lives of the saints themselves recorded in scripture and even after uh, the cessation of the recording of Scripture in the history of the church. Consider the words of the Lord are unlike those words of the wicked, life-giving. John 6, verses 67 and 68. Remember this period when Christ starts with some very hard teachings? I am the bread of life. You must eat my flesh in order to be saved. And many turned, right? Walked away. These are two hard sayings. And Christ said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter, as usual, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And James 1.18 tells us, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. We are given new birth through the word of truth. God's word so starkly contrasted with the word of man, the flattering lips, the boastful sayings. Uh, <clears throat> Chuck Colson, some of you know the name, founded uh, Prison Fellowship and was actually a fascinating figure in Watergate. He was a hatchet man for President Nixon uh, ex-marine and just a tough guy, ruthless. But the Lord got a hold of him when he went to prison uh, for his role in Watergate. Colson observed, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. <laughs> How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. They couldn't keep alive for three weeks. They were telling on one another. They were contradicting everything. Uh, it was absurd. Colson says, you're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So... <clears throat> 
Sinners talk of vanity, emptiness. Let us speak of Jesus and his gospel, the ultimate truth, right? Remember, too, language itself, it's a gift from God, right? In this way, we are somewhat made in his image. God spoke the world into existence. And we're given the privilege, unlike all other creatures under heaven, of speaking, right? A means of communing, not only with one another, but with the God of the universe. But just as the good sower sows his seed, the word, all across the earth, I would suggest to you, so the wicked one also sows deceit and falsehood. And as another parable tells us, the wheat grows right alongside the tares and vice versa. We are called, I think, to exercise discernment, not only in what we say, but in what we hear, what we take in, and how we hear. Many of you, I hope, are familiar with the little children's uh, jingle, be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear. I think that's good advice for all of us, whether we're children or not. Think about how inundated we are today with media of all kinds, from texts, emails, social media, movies, memes, video clips, you name it, you're being barraged through media. In fact, it makes me think of that earlier verse that says, with our lips we will prevail. I would say that may be sort of a slogan for today's major media. They know how effective they are in inducing us to believe all kinds of crazy things. Can we realistically be expected to be beacons of light and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to be heralds of truth when our minds are saturated with empty words instead of God's word? I would caution you with Philippians 4.8, Paul's admonition again. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there's any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, not the things of earth. Ultimately, William Tyndale told us, God's goodness is the root of all goodness and our goodness if we have any spring out of his goodness. How do you get that? Remember Jordan again challenged us three places where God has promised to meet with us. Remember what those are? Prayer, the word, and in the gathering of his children in church, right? Go to him in those means of grace. It's his goodness that we must rely upon ultimately. Well, the last two verses here are interesting to say the least. Verses seven and eight. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. And then verse 8, the wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. In verse 7, somewhat, I'd say, expected here. You see the trust, the faith of the psalmist in God's word. There used to be that bumper sticker. I don't know if it's still around. God said it. That settles it. 
think that's very true, right? We're urged to trust in the Lord with all our heart. Once God has given us his word, his promise, and there are so many of these promises throughout scripture that we can latch on to, aren't there? We must trust. That's the whole idea behind faith. Faith believes, right? But verse 8 is somewhat surprising, I would suggest. Usually you've got that downturn in the Psalms and it ends on a high note. But look what he does here in verse 8. He returns us to the present circumstances. He has looked, God has promised that he will act, and the psalmist puts his faith in that, but then he comes back. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Notice, by the way, that phrase, the sons of men, back again to remind us we are still sons of Adam, stuck here in this city of man. And it's a very truthful saying, isn't it? That when those in power are corrupt and have left off from following God, those underlings and those around them are almost sure to follow. As the head goes, so goes the body, right? When vileness, sinfulness, wickedness of all kinds, don't we see it today, are lifted up and praised, they strut about, wickedness will surely multiply. It's just a reality. <clears throat> if vileness, uh, Alexander McLaren points out, is set on high among the sons of men, it's often because the sons of men prefer it to the stern purity of goodness. A corrupt people will crown corrupt men and put them aloft. We live in a country where, at least theoretically, we have the privilege of voting and electing our leaders. Can it be said of us that we as a corrupt people are crowning corrupt men? Do our leaders not reflect us to some degree? Well, we are called, as we've said, to proclaim God's light and his word in a world of darkness where sin abounds. It's a, a quote attributed to George Orwell, the uh, novelist, though they can't actually find where he might have said it. It's certainly a truism. During times of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. Well, we may find ourselves increasingly in a time where uh, deceit rules and telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. The question for us is, will we be faithful to God and his call to stand and to speak, to be the light in the darkness. When God is at work, the situation does not seem near so desperate. We know that our God hears, our God sees, our God will act. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 closes in this way. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful again 
that you are the God of truth, that Jesus Christ is the truth, the way, the life. Lord, you have called us out of darkness and into light. You have brought us from death into life. And Lord, you have entrusted us with the treasure of your word. Father, you have equipped us. You have given us all we need to do all your good pleasure. Help us, Lord, even in our weakness. Help us, Father, to lean on one another, to run to you, to cry out even as David did in this psalm. Help, Lord. You know, Father, the frailness of our flesh. You know, Father, the uh, brief moment of time that you've given us on this earth. Help us, Father, to speak your truth, to love you with heart and soul and mind and strength. And, Father, to be there for one another as we walk through this uh, world that you have created and given to us. Thank you for this night. Thank you, Lord God, for your children here. We pray that Christ, again, would be glorified in our hearts as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.